Welcome to Strictly Facts, a guide to Caribbean history and culture, hosted by me, Alexandria Miller. Strictly Facts teaches the history, politics, and activism of the Caribbean and connects these themes to contemporary music and popular culture. Wagwan Strictly Facts family, one thing I've always held important in our discussions here is the cultural and historical diversity and that makes up and has influenced who we were, are, and our community and greater diaspora. We spoke briefly about this group ironically when talking about the various influences on Jamaica's national language, but the Irish migrated broadly across the British Caribbean. Irish migration to the Caribbean began after a 1641 rebellion in the British colony by those who opposed English rule. In an effort to diffuse some of this tension, the governor devised a plan to deport and even create a separate Irish colony on what we now know as modern day St. Kitts. But one of the primary places for this deportation um, and movement of some of the Irish are in what we now know as Montserrat. So joining our episode today is founder and digital content creator of Caribbean and Co. Ursula Petula Barzi. Ursula, thank you so much for joining Strictly Facts today. Um, why don't you begin by telling us a bit about yourself, how you got, you know, inspired to do Caribbean content creation and the love of your home, Montserrat. Yes, thank you very much for having me. Let's see. I am originally from the Caribbean island of Montserrat, however, with my you know, American twang. We moved to the U.S. and I lived in the U.S. for roughly three decades. And then about a decade ago, when I was working in uh, Chicago for a global management uh, consulting firm, I got the opportunity to transfer to their London office. And so I currently live in London and I no longer work for that management uh, consulting firm. I left and became a freelance you know, marketing person, so to speak. So here in London, um, I have a digital marketing agency called Moxie Marketing, and I also have a blog called Caribbean & Co. I started that back in 2014, and essentially two years before that in 2012, I was working on the campaign to promote um, Montserrat's 50th festival, Our Carnival. And one of my tasks for that project was to research online, you know, you know, publications, blogs, where we could send, you know, press releases to promote the festival. And while doing that research, I was really surprised to see that there were very few travel publications that were written by people who actually lived in the region. So most of the content was through a white gaze written by foreign-owned folks. And so I wanted to be part of the solution in helping us to tell our own stories. Yes, you know, I've been out of the region for a while, but I love Montserrat and the rest of the region. And so in 2014, um, after two years of doing research and working with a developer, I decided to launch the the platform. And um, since then, it's gone from strength to strength. I wanted to start off with talking about this history of Irish migration to the Caribbean, and it's impossible to cover all of the islands, right, in just one episode. So maybe this might have various offspring episodes, but um, I think Montserrat's history of Irish connection is really interesting, especially being 
one of two, so outside of Ireland, the only other um, country to have St. Patrick's Day marked as an official national holiday. Before we get there, could you walk us through that early settlement of Irish migration to Montserrat specifically? Yes. So um, I'm going to start by giving you about um, a dozen or so main facts, um, starting with, you know, 1493. This is the first time that Christopher Columbus, I won't say discovered, but stumbled upon, <laughs> you know, the Americas. And that is when he saw the island of Montserrat during his second voyage. Um, he did not land on Montserrat, but he named the island um, after a abbey in Spain. So for roughly about 140 years on, in other sightings, but no one you know, lived on the island. Then in about 1632, Montserrat becomes a colony. And as you alluded to earlier, many of the early settlers came across from uh, St. Kitts. And they came across primarily because the you know, Irish Protestants and the Catholics were not getting along. No surprise, they brought you know, their war <laughs> from you know, Europe to the Caribbean. And then roughly um, about you know, 15 years later in 1649, um, there were about a thousand white families living on Montserrat. Now, they weren't all from St. Kitts. Um, some came um, from Virginia in the USA, um, and others came uh, directly from, you know, Ireland. Now, most of these early settlers, most of these early Irish settlers were what we would classify as you know, economic migrants. Um, that said, though, in about 1649, so roughly, you know, around the same time, Montserrat did start to get a flux of, you know, political prisoners. So, so people that were chucked out of Ireland and it was like, okay, we, we need to get rid of these people. We'll send them to the colonies. And so prisoners as well as indentured servants who volunteered were coming into the colony. And at the same time, as the agricultural unit production transitioned from um, cotton, you know, tobacco and more into uh, sugar or white gold, we started to see the arrivals in the 1650s of you know, enslaved you know, Africans to Montserrat as well as you know, elsewhere in the region. And so the social structure was the planter class, it was the merchants, it was the white uh, indentured servants as well as you know, you know, enslaved uh, Africans. And then we jump a little bit um, just briefly here to 1665 where Montserrat was actually invaded by the French. One of two times that the French you know, invaded Montserrat. That said though, the British got it back and jumping even further afield um, in 1678 where the first you know, official census was done of the island. Um, we see that the population is now 3,674. And of that, um, the majority are still white, 2,682, and black is 992. Um, jumping even further, still sugar dominates. And um, in 1735, um, you know, Montreux has a banner year, you know, producing over 3,000 tons. This was pretty good considering Montserrat is only 40 square miles. So it did not, you know, produce as much as Barbados and, you know, Jamaica and, you know, the larger islands, but it was cranking out a lot of sugar at that time. Then jumping 
ahead in 1768, that's where we get the slave rebellion. And that was you know, scheduled for St. Patrick's Day, but the plot was discovered and unfortunately it didn't happen. But just 20 years later, the white population on Munzerat decreases to just 290. Now, I should say that in addition to the rebellion, there were also other, like a major hurricane in 1773. You know, so there were all these things that were happening that you know, influenced why the Irish left Munstrat. And then in 1834, which is when you know, the British says, okay, you know, emancipation. Then in 1843, we had another major earthquake and um, it caused major damage. So that by the time we you know, end up um, towards the end of the 1800s, there's a small number of Irish people that are left on the island. So that said though, during the heyday height of slavery, the Irish dominated the island. The Irish through restrictions by the British were not able to do as the other colonizers did. So, you know, they couldn't take slave ships to Africa and, and bring, you know, people back. But, you know, within, you know, Montserrat, they governed, they ruled. The first four governors were Irish. So that's just kind of a, you know, brief history of the Irish in Montserrat. When thinking of Montserrat and this, you know, sort of obviously very complicated colonial history, to take you back to the St. Patrick's Day Rebellion, I think that is a standout moment in my understanding of Montserrat's history yep. and even how the memory of Black and Irish, how that lives on today um, in, you know, Montserrat's continued legacy in history. And so could you take us back a bit to um, the attempted rebellion and how its memory has lived on? Yes. So during the 1700s, um, as the you know, demand for more sugar um, in Europe and the planter class in Montserrat, like you know, elsewhere within the region, they wanted more profits, more profits, more profits. And so they were pretty cruel. They were extremely cruel to the enslaved Africans who were working in the plantation. So as a result of that, there were numerous you know, rebellions and this one got the furthest without actually taking place. So essentially a core group of about nine to a dozen planned to launch a rebellion on St. Patrick's Day, March 17th in 1768, because the Irish ruling class would pretty much be drunk. <laughs> they, you know, they were celebrating. And so they wanted to catch them at a weak moment. However, the rebellion did not take place because um, a couple of days before it was to kick off, um, it was discovered. There are conflicting stories as to who told. So one story goes that it was a white woman who you know, overheard the planners and she went and then told the masters. Um, another story says that it was someone within the core group who snitched and went and told the masters. But either way, the rebellion did not happen and the core group were basically executed because the masters wanted to set an example to the others on the plantations, you know, across the island that, you know, rebellion would not be tolerated. That said though, that rebellion, word of that, you know, got to other islands and it did inspire other islands to 
uh, rebel. So from that standpoint, it was successful. And you know, essentially for many years, um, people on Munstrat did not know about the history of the rebellion. Um, no surprise there, slaves were not allowed to write. <laughs> and so we didn't keep our own you know, journals. And much of the history of Munstrat was in official documents that were kind of you know, hidden away and not easily accessible. That said though, in uh, 1972, the Montserrat Secondary School put on a Know Your Past uh, event. And the students through music, art and dance had a number of events and one of them highlighted the 1768 uh, rebellion. Now, I should say that at the same time, um, there is a parish in Montserrat that is called St. Patrick's. And so while there were events happening and you know St. Patrick's. It didn't focus on the rebellion. It was more about the religious side of you know St. Patrick, you know Irish saint, you know yada yada yada. So yeah, like I mean, super interesting to me that the St. Patrick's Day celebration that you know takes place annually now, at least in my understanding, isn't you know what at least we would understand it from this global northern perspective, right? I mean, it's green and, you know, it's the celebration, but it's also very beautifully, I think, in honor of this attempted yeah. rebellion. Yes. Yeah. So in 1985, uh, after a number of years in lobbying, St. Patrick's Day in Munster became a, a national holiday. There was talk of calling it, you know, Heroes Day instead of St. Patrick's Day. However, um, it was left as St. Patrick's Day is a national holiday. And the goal then was to honor the core group as well as all of our ancestors who suffered greatly under slavery in Munstrat by the hands of the you know the Irish as well as British. That said though, in the last decade or so, as the festival has become more populous, and I should say that the festival takes place over a 10-day period in March each year. But as it's become more popular, it is starting to mimic the celebrations that you find, say, in Boston, you know, Chicago, Dublin. It's more revelry <laughs> and less about our ancestors. And as someone who likes and honors our, you know, ancestors, it's really upsetting because it's lazy marketing. And also I kind of feel like we're dancing on the graves of our ancestors and we're sort of, you know, experiencing Stockholm you know, syndrome. We're romanticizing a people that were not kind to us. <laughs> they were brutal to our ancestors. And so because it's convoluted and because we don't do a good enough job of positioning the festival and you know, allowing others to do it for us, that a lot of people who are coming to the festival aren't fully aware that it is about our African ancestors and not you know, about this Irish saint. Uh, I was actually at Notting Hill Carnival at the end of August and I was draped in a huge you know, Munstrat flag. And so of course, you know, people were talking to me. And one of the chaps that spoke to me he was like, yeah, oh my God, I can't wait to visit the island you know, for you know, St. Patrick's Day. And I was like, do you know why we celebrate, you know, St. Patrick's Day? 
And I had to school him and his chin just dropped because he had no idea that it was about our African ancestors who were basically murdered and not about this, you know, link to Ireland that isn't all that pleasant. I mean, I think that's a constant conversation that we've had in the podcast, the like appeal of tourism and, you know, how that sort of not even manipulates our history, but I mean, it manipulates it, of course, and waters down sort of the impact. And I think foundational points, especially given that like the festival was started as one thing, right, and has over time trickled down into something else. I mean, those kids in 1972, (laughs) you know, it was rooted in our African heritage. That is what it was about. And if you read um, Dr. Ferguson's, you know, Howard A. Ferguson's book, where he talks about the history of the St. Patrick's Day Festival, and this is a book that he published last year because just, just so much misinformation, you know, about the history of the Irish in Montserrat and this uh, festival. It's like, no, but, you know, primarily because the festival doesn't have its own website. So there's not this culture and heritage context. Yes, there are quite a few heritage uh, events. For for example, there's a, you know, St. Patrick's Day lecture that's usually given by an academic person. Um, There's a heritage bus tour. There's an African fashion show. There's a parade and that usually has, you know, masquerade dancers and troops. Then there's a heritage feast. So it's all about, you know, traditional food. So there are quite a few, you know, events that focus on our heritage, our culture. However, there are other events like, you know, the Soko concert, like, you know, the reggae concert, like, you know, the various fets and parties. And it's like, those are becoming increasingly more popular. and that's what's drawing in the larger audience. And, you know, I don't really have a problem to some degree if those people, you know, also knew, but this is the real reason why this festival is happening. So I do have one back question, but, you know, we'll sure. keep we'll keep on this point. Um, sure. I think based off the experiences of the Irish in Montserrat, you know, and elsewhere, in the Caribbean, especially during the 1600s, some scholars, I won't say whether I agree or not yet, but some scholars have suggested that the Irish should be classified as slaves um, or in the same you know, category as enslaved Africans. And so given your knowledge and history of Montserrat, what's your view on this? So I will categorically soundly reject this argument. <laughs> and here is why. Well, first, let me just start by giving you the numbers for the Irish, you know, in the region. So an Irish historian, Thomas Bartlett, who was a professor at um, the University of Aberdeen, he, um, in one of the scholarly journals, says that, you know, approximately 10,000 Irish people came to the West Indies involuntarily. So they were prisoners who were sent to the colonies. An additional (laughs) 40,000 came voluntarily. They were economic migrants, um, you know, because of the troubles and you know everything that was happening in Ireland. You know, conditions were hard, and like you know people today, you know, the Irish wanted to go seek their fortune, and some came to the region voluntarily. 
So we have a population of about 50,000 know, Irish people voting in, you know, across the region. Now, you know, compare that to the enslaved you know, Africans, um, about 5 million came to the Caribbean region and about 2.3 million you know, of those came to the British you know, West Indies. Now, in terms of the treatment of the two groups, and this is the key point, now, I would argue that there are five reasons why the Irish were not slaves. First of all, their status was temporary. So yes, they were indentured servants or you know, prisoners, but that status was temporary. So if you volunteered and the planter, master, you know, whatever you want to call them, paid your passage to the West Indies, you, you know, agreed to do a term for five to seven years. If you were a prisoner, it would have been like seven to 10 years. After that period of service was done, and yes, it was hard and it was brutal, but once that was done, you were then free. And most often, you know, second point is that the Irish were paid. <laughs> so they were paid in their passage to the Americas, um, in food, clothing, housing while they were working. And then um, once their term was up, some got land, you know, primarily for the early uh, migrants. And then if they didn't get land, they got cash or they got hundreds of pounds of sugar, which they could turn into cash. So second you know, reason why <laughs> they were not slaves. The third reason, the you know, family units that they came with, they basically could you know, remain that way. So whereas you know, the Africans could have you know, the mom, dad, even child sold, <laughs> you know, if you came with your spouse as an Irish person, you were set. Um, fourth, you had some legal protection. So there were laws <laughs> that said how the Irish were to be treated. <laughs> And if the Irish were mistreated, they could take the masters, the planters to court. You know, enslaved Africans could not do that. And so here again, not the same category. And the fifth is that once the Irish were finished with their term, they could choose to stay on the island or they could choose to leave. So yes, their time in the Caribbean, British West Indies was difficult because, you know, it was the new world, <laughs> but they were not slaves, not in comparison to our ancestors. I couldn't have said it better. I was like, I'll just, you know, I'll leave you. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, I think to your point, right, like there's a drastic difference between being viewed as property, right? Versus, you know, yeah. being somebody who's like still a person and has rights to an extent. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and if we even want to take it further, I mean, you know, we today are still suffering as a result of what our ancestors went through. And also, an important point is that at the end of slavery, when the British was giving out compensation and the British paid out. 20 million uh, pounds back then. Of that, 800,000 was paid out to Irish planters and merchants. And that money was roughly about 105 million pounds 
Um, and that translates to about 122 million US dollars you know, today. Our ancestors didn't get any compensation. We haven't gotten any compensation. And so, you know, here again, no, we were not in the same class. We, we were not treated the same way. Yes, suffering happened to both groups, but when you're talking about a legal definition and when you're talking about the treatment in a completely, uh, you know, separate. Definitely. Um, so as you alluded to earlier, towards that like latter, I guess, 1800s period, um, you start to see some migrations of the Irish out of Montserrat. Um, and so what are some of the other ways, you know, that the Irish influence lives on on the island? Yes. So I would say that there are about five ways that we see the Irish influence the island and all of them are what I would classify as you know archaeological not cultural so one um places you know a lot of um you know villages you know mountains shorelines still have you know Irish names two surnames there are lots of Irish surnames you know Allen's Farrell's you know Sweeney you know Osborne Ryan you know Tewitt Roach but that is because you know at the end of slavery most of the enslaved Africans took the names of their former masters. Uh, you know, I don't think they were thinking about us <laughs> and um, what that would mean for us, but, you know, they took those names. Um, three, in the Montserrat flag, our coat of arms has a white woman, you know, she's holding a cross and there's a harp. Um, and she is thought to be like, you know, Aaron, the national symbol of Ireland. Now, I should say that that coat of arms was instituted in 1909, so long after most of the Irish left. That said, though, you know, their legacy was still there. Fourth, if you come to Munstrat, um, your passport is going to be stamped with a shamrock stamp, a green shamrock stamp. Um, fifth, there is the national holiday which I alluded to, but again, it, it's not about the Irish, it's about our ancestors, but because it's still called St. Patrick's Day instead of Heroes Day holiday, then it's you know, considered Irish. On the cultural side, I would argue that there is minimal. However, there's been a series of scholars starting with um, John Messenger, who is an anthropologist from the US, who came to Munstrat circa 1965 with his wife and spent about seven weeks. And based on his time on the island, as well as he also went to Ireland and you know, visited some of their libraries and did some you know, research, um, he wrote a paper which was published in, um, in a Caribbean quarterly in 1967 where he basically argues that there's lots of cultural influence um, on the island. I'm like, what is he talking about? You know, you know, specifically as it relates to our music and our food. I'm just like, bro. <laughs> um, there are others, including um, Dr. Howard A. Fergus, who I mentioned you know, earlier, who also reject this. For, for example, our national dish is goat water. John Messenger says that goat water was introduced by Irish settlers. What he fails to acknowledge is that if you go to Africa, there are lots of goat water recipes. So could it be a mix? 
right possibly (laughs) but is it all irish no no (laughs) and so john messenger you know essentially does that with language he does that with me he basically finds one or two you know examples and basically says yep like like the whole culture is irish uh no and Sadly, because of that paper heavily quoted in academic journals, um, you know, lots of other scholars have come to the island and they have, you know, regurgitated some of that garbage. For example, one recent example is another paper that was published by two academic researchers called, you know, Historic and Contemporary Irish on Montserrat. And in it, they make a number of glaring errors. For example, Montserrat you know, adopted a national dress in 2002. The national dress has a skirt made of a medros type cloth that is primarily green, white, yellow, orange. However, they assert that it is a parton <laughs> pattern. I'm like, no. <laughs> As if we don't wear, haven't worn that dress across the Caribbean. But... I'm like, uh, did you do your research? Did you so you know and this is one of the reasons why I started the blog and it has migrated not just about travel but also some of the history stuff because we have outsiders who are telling our story and just basic facts is wrong now some of this is our own fault because even today we still insist on an oral history and we still hold on to knowledge. And you sometimes have to dig it and dig it out of folks, you know, before you will find it, which is rather frustrating. And it has been through this experience because like I've read a number of academic journals and I no longer trust any of them. <laughs> because it's like, wow, you know, I used to take them as fact. Now I'm like, okay, I have to read them and then go read something else. Right. Go go read something else because I no longer trust. Because what I come to realize is that a lot of people come to this subject with their own agenda and they don't want to give you the straight facts. They want to put a spin on it or they have some theory and they're basically telling you facts that kind of support that, which is half the truth, not the full truth, which is frustrating. You made a point that I think led to my next question talking about surnames, right? And, you know, through your own blog and reading your own blog, I think one of the legacies of slavery is that either people are of Irish descent or, you know, because of the uh, abuses of, you know, planters and those who were enslaved, but also just by nature of the names. And so you've even attempted to trace your own genealogy and, you know, help understand what is this sort of, I think, ongoing myth of the Black Irish. And so what were your ultimate results and how did, you know, your results contribute to how you think about Black Irish in Montserrat? Yeah. So as a child in Montserrat, I never thought of myself as Black Irish I grew up in Boston, one of the most Irish cities. I never thought of myself as Black Irish. I lived in uh, Chicago, which is a very Irish city in certain parts. I never thought of myself as Black Irish. And it's been literally in the last decade with the conversations around the St. Patrick's Day Festival. They're like, but you're Black Irish. I'm like, no, I'm not Black Irish. 
And so as a result of that, um, I actually took two DNA tests. Now the first one is by African Ancestry and they told me what I already knew. I am 95% African, West African, <laughs> and I'm 5% European. Of that, 4% is Irish and 1% is Welsh, Scottish. So is the 4% enough to make me Irish? If you apply the one drop rule, yes, but no, because no one looking at me in terms of my features, no one looking at me in terms of my, my you know, mannerisms, or even once you get to know me deeper and talk to me about my culture, heritage, and history will think of me as Irish. When I took the African ancestry test, they only had about 1500 DNA you know, samples from people in Africa. So a small selection and they keep adding. And so my results <laughs> keep getting updated and you know, getting more fine tuned, but they're not as accurate as they should be. That said though, with you know, African ancestry, they were able to tell me that I was connected to you know, specific tribes in three different um, you know, countries. Yes, I've got about four or 5% of you know, European uh, DNA, but we know that it's because one of my ancestors was taken advantage of. But even you know, along the lines, <laughs> it is still a minute number. I should say that there was an Irish researcher who came to Munstrat in 2018, and she took a sampling of you know, people, Black Irish people in Munstrat to kind of see, okay, is this myth or reality? Sadly, the results have not been published. I keep chasing her up to you know, find out, okay, you know, tell us, tell us. I suspect it is because it will clearly show that the majority of us are West African and not, you know, from Ireland. But because the myth is a good story to tell, people want to perpetuate it. I think one thing, you know, just giving the timing of this episode that we'd be remiss not to mention, right, um, is the recent passing of Queen Elizabeth. And I think particularly the social media community, I will say, that has been built amongst some people who are, for the most part, you know, former British subjects. So in that, I'm talking about particularly the Irish, the sort of collaborations I've been seeing on social media between Black and Irish people um, on Twitter, especially. So what are your thoughts on, you know, just how everything has been playing out? Yeah, it's been interesting being in London and watching the response. I have essentially stopped watching TV, stopped listening to the radio, because while I find it very sad that the queen died, I, you know, I liked her as a person. I don't believe in the institution. And I also don't like being told how I'm supposed to you know, respond to this family who have benefited from my ancestors being in bondage. And so as it relates to the Irish, I relate, but I'm also giving them the side eye <laughs> because I'm like, your hands are not clean either. Your ancestors came to the British West Indies. And even though some of them came as prisoners, they turned around <laughs> and did horrible things, if not worse things, to the Africans who they 
were, you know, controlling. So I sort of give the Irish like the side eye because yes, you suffered, but your hands were also dirty because the only reason why the Irish didn't get involved in the slave trade to a greater extent is because the British wouldn't allow them. There was legislation after legislation in parliament, which basically said that, that the Irish couldn't start a you know, Africa company, they couldn't do slave ships, you know, how they could trade. So that's the only reason why the Irish were not further or more involved in all of the empire stuff. And it's just like, no, when you came to the British West Indies, you did bad stuff. So I see you and sympathize in terms of what happened to your people in Ireland, but I'm I kind of need you to kind of take ownership of what your people did in the British West Indies. And if you do that, yeah, then, you know, we could be best mates. <laughs> but, you know, like until then, mm, I'm gonna give you the side eye <laughs> and just be like, yeah, no. I have friends of all nationalities. And for me as a budding historian, I just want people to acknowledge their history. It doesn't mean that you personally did anything wrong, but people you know, along your line back in the day did things, whether they be British, Irish, French, Spanish, Dutch, under empire, you know, starting in like the 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, and even into the 19th, you know, 20th you know, century, some horrible shit happened. Take ownership of it. And then we can begin the conversation as to how we uh, today can do better and, you know, make sure that these things don't happen again and even pay some compensation, not individual compensation, but collective compensation in terms of how government, you know, money is spent, what programs are funded. Um, you think about how much is being spent on the queen's funeral. Like I've been Googling this frantically because I'm like, the country has come to a standstill. You know, appointments, operations are being uh, canceled. Businesses are being told, no, no, you can't do X, Y, and Z. You know, no government is taking place. You know, we have a crisis in terms of our gas and prices and all this other stuff. And like the country has come to a standstill and it's going to cost like billions of dollars. And, but no, we must be in mourning for a family who, I don't know, I'm so conflicted. I'm extremely conflicted. I mean, I, I thought that point of, you know, understanding um, people being aware of the history and the legacies that have, you know, played into it is definitely necessary, especially given our episode on Irish Caribbean connections. So, Yeah, because it, people, they'll say, well, you know, I didn't do anything. My parents didn't do anything. My grandparents didn't do anything. But your parents, your grandparents, and you today, you benefit from what your earlier ancestors did. Some of your wealth comes from <laughs> what they did. And even if you don't have material wealth, you know, because of how we were subjugated, because of how we were, you know, classified, dehumanized, you being a white person still have a upper hand 
and don't experience the kind of racial prejudice that black people and other minorities do when you know they're trying to get loans when they're trying to get into schools and all these other things it's like understand that even today institutional our racism is what we experience well my last question of course everybody knows and i think it's funny because you had kind of answered it already you know i'm always looking for ways that we connect our history to popular culture and maybe it's not the history of, you know, the Irish in Montserrat particularly, but maybe even it's the history of the St. Patrick's Day Rebellion. So what are some of the ways um, that you see this history showing up in popular culture contemporarily? Yes. So definitely in um, books, uh, there have been a number of books written by Montserratians, but two that I would really recommend are by you know, Dr. Howard A. Fergus, who is the preeminent uh, historian for Montserrat. And it gives a solid foundation of the island. So the first one is called Montserrat History of a Caribbean Colony. And the second one is on St. Patrick's Day celebrations in Montserrat, a history. Um, he also has a number of other books, but those two core books, you know, specific to um, you know, Montserrat, and the Irish. Another book that I will highly recommend, it is academic, but it's, it's an easy read. It's called If the Irish Ran the World, Montserrat 1630 to 1730. And it's by Donald Harkman Atkinson. And really he pushes back on the sweeping you know, generalizations that are made about Montserrat, um, about the Irish in Montserrat and really the rest of the Caribbean. Um, the beauty of that book is that it really unmasks and shows, no, all these other folks just making stuff up. And then on the purely sort of social side, look at one book that I would recommend is called Island Queen by uh, Vanessa Riley. And I have seen that book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so I recommend this book primarily because it is about the descendant of an Irish planter man and a black slave from Montserrat who goes on to become one of the richest women in the region. And she lived on five different islands and she lived on Montserrat up through her teen, but her entrepreneurial skills, she was able to raise you know, enough money to free herself, her mother, her sister, her first you know, children, and then you know, buy houses, had you know, restaurants, you name it, she was hardcore. And so it shows the ugly side of what happened you know, during that time, but it also gives a little bit of hope that you know, some of us were able to kind of rise you know, above all of that because even though her father was white from all appearances she was a black woman she wasn't a light-skinned black woman she was a black woman <laughs> so no one would even think she was mixed right. um and that's what i love you know about her story and also sort of debunking that yes. black irish yes. myth right so yes because her father he didn't free her he didn't help her he was cruel and in fact it is you know alleged that her first second child may have been with her brother who took advantage of her because of slavery. So, you know, he was white, he came to the colonies, 
with his father and he basically took advantage of her. So yeah, it plays out. Oyago, stay tuned for Strictly Fact Sounds where we connect our history to pop culture. Adding to Ursula's fiction suggestion, Island Queen by Vanessa Riley, I'm also including historical novel, The Tide Between Us, an epic Irish Caribbean story of slavery and emancipation by Olive Collins, which parallels Irish indentureship and African slavery in the 19th century. For some further historical readings, be sure to check out An Irishman's Life on the Caribbean Island of St. Vincent, 1787 to 1790 by Mark S. Quintanilla and If the Irish Ran the World, Montserrat, 1630 to 1730 by Donald Atkinson. Both texts historicize the Irish planter class and the Caribbean and clarify, as we discussed in today's episode, that the Irish did indeed play a role in Caribbean slavery. The former book by Quintanilla even includes correspondence by the 18th century Irish Attorney General of St. Vincent regarding his aim to protect the interests of the colonies. Well, I'll be linking all of these resources um, so that our listeners have access to them. Ursula, thank you so much for joining Strictly Facts. Thank you for sharing this deeply necessary history with us. And to our listeners, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Little more. Thanks for tuning in to Strictly Facts. Visit strictlyfactspodcast.com for more information from each episode. Follow us at Strictly Facts Pod on Instagram and Facebook and at Strictly Facts PD on Twitter. <laughs>